Good evening once again. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Esther. We are nearing the completion of this book this evening. This is not the last sermon. This is the penultimate sermon, which means it's second to last. It will be for Reverend King to close out our series on the book of Esther. I trust it has been a blessing to you as we go through this most interesting book of the Old Testament. And then as we get completed with the book of Esther, we'll be starting a new series on the one another's of Scripture, going through various one another's and giving opportunity not just for the pastoral staff to preach, but for some others, uh, ruling elders and uh, ministerial uh, those who are seeking seminary education and ministerial education to be able to, to do that as well. But we come to the end, uh, nearly the end of this book, and it is an interesting book in that its story is fascinating, and there are many twists and turns, and has been mentioned several times, but I'll mention it again this evening. God is not mentioned by name in this book, and I think that's intentional. But that also does not mean that God is absent in this book. And I hope that that is a help to you because there are times in our life when we believe that God is not present or with us or that he's far away from us. But the truth of the matter is, is that he has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us. And so the book of Esther is proof of that scriptural truth. Again, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Esther chapter 8. We'll be reading all of chapter 8 and then seek the Lord's blessing in prayer. Let's, if you would now give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Esther 8, beginning at verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot which he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king... And I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold! I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. 
The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and, and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal steed, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Aresuraeus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The kings had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That even as we study your word, we would know that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that you are the great protector of your people. As we look at the salvation of Esther and her people, Lord, we long to see a picture of our salvation, of the finished work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might see Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we are coming now to the conclusion of an incredible drama. Esther is now faced with overturning an unchangeable decree, for a decree of the Persians is not to be revoked, the emperor tells us. She's overcome already the second most powerful man in the empire. But what had seemed previously so grim has now completely changed. We see a great turnabout, which is a picture of salvation itself. You see, often we have our eyes and our vision, and we fail to see with God's eyes and with his vision. And so our story this evening gives us insight into this to see how God is in control and saves his people. 
So the very first thing that I want us to see is the obvious, is Esther's salvation. Esther is saved. You may recall that Esther was on the brink of destruction. Even though she was married to the king, she knew that this decree of destruction was for all of the Jews, including her. And she did not know what to do because she knew to approach the king unbidden would be a death sentence. We see a picture of that in the king pointing his scepter at her. That's an indication that she has found favor in his sight and can speak. And so as we await to see what will happen, again, we're struck that God is not to be found in the text. We think that Esther and Mordecai are faced with destruction and they have no hope. There's no obvious answer here. God is not found in the foreground protecting them. But God is indeed still sovereign. And so there is a great irony here as this chapter opens, because now for the very first time it is known that Esther is a Jew. She comes to King Ahasuerus and she tells him who she is. And you see this at the end of verse 1. She tells him and Mordecai comes before the king and she says what Mordecai was to her. Now that's our author's way of saying that she's related to Mordecai. That she's a Jew. Now we don't know at this point exactly what was in the king's mind. If perhaps he knew that Esther was one of the Jews. If he was concerned for her. But at this point in this overturning, this turnabout, Esther makes plain that she's a Jew. And it's interesting here because the fact is why Mordecai has been promoted to the position he's in now. Because he is a Jew, because he knows the Lord, because he speaks with honesty, because he has protected the king, and because Esther has approached the king and unraveled Haman's plot, it is now known exactly who Mordecai is, exactly who Esther is, and this is a cause for celebration. They had previously feared Others finding out they were associated with God and his people. And now we see that that fear is completely unfounded. Because it's actually the cause of their being raised up. So the king responds to Esther with a gesture that's identical to what he did for Haman. If you read verse 2 and then if you turn back in the book of Esther, you will see it is virtually identical to what has been described in chapter 3, verse 10. The king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So now we've already seen Haman hanged on his own gallows. And now we see all of the benefits that had come to him as the second highest official in the land are now given to Mordecai. Now, what does that mean? Don't miss it. God is at work in the midst of Esther's fear and her challenges. Esther didn't all of a sudden become the bravest woman on the face of the earth. No, she still had fear and trembling. She still knew there were challenges ahead. She forged ahead, but not in reckless confidence. But yet God was there in the midst of this. And so this reminds us 
that it is not our ability or our courage even that matters. It's God. You see, God can work above and beyond or with means. He is indeed sovereign. Now, a question that we might ask ourselves is, what would have happened if this had come about earlier in chapter 2? You may recall back in chapter 2, specifically at verse 10, Esther hid her heritage. We read, Esther had not made her people or her kindred known, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So what would have happened if she hadn't intentionally kept that from the king? Esther's plea here in verse 6 is nearly identical in words to what happened in Chapter 2, verse 10, in verse 6, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The word choice is identical, and that is, I think, intentional. People and kindred. People and kindred. And so we are left, I think, to speculate what would have happened if she would have come clean at the get-go. Even more so, if Mordecai had not given her the advice to hide her heritage. We might look at Mordecai and Esther and say, they should have trusted God. They should have gone right to the king and declared everything and let the chips fall where they may. But you and I know that's not how life works. We're not always fearless. We don't always feel in control. And so we don't know what would have happened. You know, it's, there's an interesting scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so... There's a question that is asked of Aslan, Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure. And the children ask him, what would have happened if we would have acted properly at the beginning? And Aslan says, you're not to be told what might have happened. You need to focus on where you are now and the situation that is before you. So let me ask you this question. Are you ever frozen by fear? Are you ever frozen by wondering what might happen? That we might find out that we were wrong and that we'd done things the wrong way. Well, I think what this text is telling us is that God's not dependent upon us doing things right to make his will known and accomplished. Let me say that again. God does not depend on us doing things right to accomplish his will. I think far too often that is in the back of our minds. That if we don't do the right thing, that if we don't say the right thing, that if we don't prepare the right thing, God just is impotent. And he wrings his hands and he wonders, what am I going to do with these people? Now, let me be very pointed with this. I think that this type of fear, this type of trepidation comes at us most closely when we think about speaking to those who are closest to us about the Lord. We wonder, do we have the right verse to share with them? Do we have the right words to share with them? What happens if we say something wrong? What happens if we upset them? That means they'll go away from Jesus forever and they'll never come to faith. I want to encourage you that Christians are called to be fearless and bold because God is in control. Now, not reckless, there's a difference. 
but to be bold. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now you could just imagine that there's got to be some folks in Philippi going to the brothers of Paul saying, listen guys, tamp this down a little bit. You know, if you're going around talking about Jesus all the time, talking about the Jesus of Paul, he's liable to get executed. You need to keep this under control. There's bad things that could happen here. And Paul actually says the exact opposite. He says, my imprisonment emboldened them because they saw that God was the one who is in control. And we need to be reminded of this because far too often we focus on our circumstances and the people around us and we are afraid of that rather than to have a healthy fear of God. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Isn't that like Jesus is talking to Esther? Don't fear the king. Well, he may put you to death, but that's not what's important. Fear God. Peter puts it this way in his first letter. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them and do not be troubled. So Peter says much the same thing as his Savior. He points us to a lack of fear, to trusting God who's in control. And we see this even in Jesus' words at, in the book of Revelation. When he speaks to seven churches in chapter 2, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now think about this. Jesus says, Don't fear those who can kill the body. And then he says, don't be afraid when you suffer. And then he really comes at us with, I think, is the most difficult. The most difficult thing is not suffering. It's fearing suffering. Suffering that's about to hit. Because then we think we can still avoid it. He says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Esther's salvation is a picture to us to not be afraid but to trust in God. But what's left in our story, in our drama? The next obvious question is, will the Jews be saved? Because Esther is saved, Mordecai is promoted to the second highest position in the kingdom, but the edict is still out there. And as the king has reminded us, you can't revoke an edict of the king. And so Esther continues her request to the king, beginning here in verse 3. She spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. I want you to notice here that Esther has no more concern for her dignity. She's seeking the lives of her people. She falls at his feet and she begs him for the lives of her people. But yet at the same time, she still speaks with great respect. Look at verse 5. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written. 
She's making every effort to show respect for the king, respect for the law, respect for the situation that's going on. So she's not hysterical. She's not overcome with emotion. She's humble, but yet respectful. Now, it's interesting how intelligent Esther is. Because who is she speaking to? But a pagan king of a pagan empire. And so she doesn't plead with him and say, you know, for the sake of the true and living God, for the covenant people of the Lord. Now, what does she do? She begins by appealing to his self-interest. If it please the king, and if I found favor in your sight, if I'm pleasing in your eyes, she's basically saying, ladies, you know, if you really love me, you should do this. Now, what husband can resist those pleadings from his wife? If you really love me, hear me out. She knows Ahasuerus like the back of her hand. But it's interesting what she does also in here. There's something embedded in here that I want to pull out for you. She says, and if the thing seems right before the king. Now, it's very interesting. Not many of you studied Hebrew, but you know this word. If it was right, do you know what that word is in Hebrew? It's kosher. So she's saying to the king, if it's kosher in your eyes, you need to do this. She is making an appeal that is backed in her knowledge and love of the living God. Because, after all, isn't that what kosher is? It's what God has set aside. It's what he has set aside as right to define the people of God. You're familiar with this, right? This is why there are certain dietary restrictions that the Jews still follow that come from the Pentateuch. God had set apart his people, and he did this in a way that was kosher. And so she picks up on this, and she says this. So what Esther has done now is has come full circle. Now she is completely identifying with her people, with her kindred. Whereas before, we're told in chapter 2, she did not want it to be known who her people and her kindred are. Now she has come full circle and says, let me tell you about my people. Let me tell you about my kindred. Now I want you to see what God can use. Because I think often we think God is short-armed. And that he is not, doesn't have the ability that we need from him to rectify circumstances. Now, you can't ask for less godlike and theological circumstances. Esther is begging a pagan king, who in some senses thinks of himself as a god, to spare her people by undoing an undoable decree. This seems like the most difficult of all circumstances. But notice how God uses circumstances and people. You see, even in a good deed, the king shows who he is. It's not as if the king has a miraculous conversion and confesses the Lord as God and says, I have to serve the Lord. That's not what happens here. He instead shows who he is. He's completely self-absorbed. Look here at verse 7. He says, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman 
And they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regarding the Jews. In the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, you know what? Do whatever you want. Whatever floats your boat. Doesn't matter to me. I'm happy. I'm the king. You know, you want to write a letter? Write a letter. Put my name on it. Use my ring. Go ahead. It doesn't really bother me one way or the other. He shows he's completely self-absorbed. Even in this act of salvation, God is using him. It's not as if he's striving. It's not as if he cares about Joseph or Mary or Simeon or any of the other Jews living in his empire at the time. No, as a matter of fact, he's using this as an occasion to show how above it all he is, how important he is. And he's even willing to introduce a contradictory edict. Now, this is very interesting. You have a law which can never be changed, which, by the way, is a really bad idea. Parents, do not ever have a rule or a law in your house that can never be changed. Circumstances change, people change, events change. And you don't want to be put in a spot like Ahasuerus is here. So he can't undo this edict. What's his solution? Well, of course, just write another undoable edict that's the exact opposite of the one that we already made. Now, could you imagine, in my mind's eye, in my sanctified imagination, as I read down through the chapter, I wonder about the satraps and the provincial officials. Because they get these two laws, and they're like, what do we do? They're like the opposite. How do we enforce both of these? You see, that's what the king is willing to do. He has little to no concern for the Jews. Any concern he might have might just be to keep his wife happy. That's what we see going on here. What a world Esther lives in. Now let me ask you a question. Do you feel like that's the kind of world that you live in? That people have no regard for God? That people don't think about God? They won't listen to please about God? That they're so absorbed in themselves that they say one thing on one day and the opposite on the next day? Well, then be of good cheer. Because just as God is found in that world with Esther, he's found in this world with you. He hasn't abandoned our world. I think this is one of the great crimes of the church to think that as the world gets darker and as sin gets more prominent, that God is abandoning us to that world. And that's not the case at all. God has promised never to leave his people, never to forsake them. And so no matter what the world looks like, our salvation is sure in the Lord. Well, the third and final thing that I want us to see this evening is that salvation not only brings life and freedom to the Jews, salvation always brings judgment also. Because just as we saw this morning in John 3.36, whoever believes on the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe on the Son, God's wrath remains on him. So those who do not believe in God, those who do not follow God's ways, 
There is judgment that comes. And we see this here in Mordecai's edict. And it's an interesting edict. So Mordecai takes the king's word and he begins to write a law, an edict. And he's going to write it in the name of the king and seal it with the signet ring so that it goes out with all his authority. And the interesting thing is, as you read it, it is remarkably similar to the edict earlier in chapter 3. So if you look at chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, that the Jews who were in every city were to gather and defend their lives. Now, hear this. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And if we go back to chapter 3 and verse 13, that edict was sent out to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, and to plunder their goods. It's parallel as much as is possible. It includes judgment, not just on the enemies of the Jews, but on their families as well. The authority of Persia is now implementing the Lord's covenant promise. Why do I say that? Do you remember the promise given to Abraham? That I will bless those who bless you. But what's the rest? And I will curse those who curse you. You see, God is zealous for the defense of his people. And he can use a pagan empire to bring that about. Never doubt the ability of God. God can keep his promises. He is never at a loss. And so there is a complete reversal of events here. Now we see Mordecai, and he's in royal robes, not in sackcloth with ashes, lamenting the plight of the Jews. And even the city of Susa has done a turnabout. Here in verse 15, it is rejoicing. You may recall when the previous edict was issued in chapter 3, in verse 15, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They're no longer confused. They're now rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? Because God's truth is being withheld, is being put forward. And the Jews themselves go from mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing in chapter 4 to light and gladness and joy and honor in chapter 8. It's a complete turnabout. Now, I want you to see something else here about this. The actual lives of the Jews didn't really change at all from chapter 4 to chapter 8. They don't live in different houses. They don't have different jobs. Nothing really substantively has changed. Just their perception about what is going to happen. See, when they thought all was lost, they despaired. But now, when they see that they are saved, they rejoice. And you see, this can happen to us because God is the same God at the beginning of this story, at the end of the story. Are you affected by the perception of what was going on around you? You see, that's what's happening to the Jews here. They were always safe in God's hands. But now their perception of circumstances has changed. And so their countenance has changed. 
Now, we expect that of unbelievers. That's exactly what happens to the unbelievers, isn't it? Their perception of what's going to happen has changed, and so now they actually pretend to be Jews. They're worried about what's going to happen. And so they put on a pretense. So what we see here is God waging a holy war against his enemies. Against, you may recall, we saw this earlier, against Agag. You remember Agag was the king who Israel fought against in the days of Saul. And that Saul was to destroy all of the Agagites and all of their goods. And he spared the best of the goods and the king. And the king came out smiling because he said to himself, the time of death is past. And Samuel hacked him to pieces. Well, that was the story back earlier in Esther. And then you may notice that in the middle part of Esther, it's always just Haman. But now look at verse 3. And look at verse 5. Who is he again now? It's Haman, the Agagite. You see, God is reminding us of his righteous judgment. God is reminding us that he is one to be feared. That we don't want to overlook the wrath of God. We don't want to overlook the judgment of God. One commentator puts it this way so well, a Puritan commentator. He says, the Lord waits long to be gracious, as if he knew not how to smite. But then he smites as if he knew not how to pity. You don't want to be in the face of the wrath of God. But today's holy war is very different than the holy war that the Jews waged against the Agagites and against the unbelieving Persians. No, today's holy war is a war of grace. Saul becomes Paul. Christ rebukes John and James when they say, we want to bring thunder from heaven. You see, the way that we overcome the world now is not by might of arms, it's not by struggle, it's by the power of the gospel and the grace of God. People are changed. We see this throughout all of history. Enemies of the Lord are brought to saving faith and become his servants. So my question for you with that is, do you view your enemies that way? As those who need the grace of God and who can be changed by the grace of God? Or are you just waiting for God to take them out? Because you see, Jesus' grace is for all of us. You and me included. The worst of sinners. Well, there is a way to escape God's judgment. We see it here in this story. It's to identify with God's people. It's to follow the Lord. But you see, we have a better mediator than Esther. We have one who intercedes for us and pleads his own worth. And that is the greatest turnabout possible. Jesus has made destruction be swallowed up in victory. Death swallowed up in life. The cross, that sign of shame and defeat, is the symbol of victory for the people of God. Have you thought about that? 
in one sense, how morbid it is to wear a cross, a sign of shame and criminality. But that's because Jesus has turned the world on its head. He is remaking the world and us the way it ought to be. And he does that by his grace. Let's pray.